I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Madigan, and you're listening to Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist, a podcast that explores the world through a personal feminist perspective. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the first episode for Black History Month. And, you know, deciding on a topic for the first week of Black History Month was a tough one for me because I have this urge to keep the topics celebratory since so much of Black history has been focused on the atrocities that the Black community has faced for centuries but I also firmly believe that we have to learn about some of those terrible things because Black women are still being affected by what the primary subject of this episode today, J. Marion Sims, did to them. There's a very famous image of a white man standing before a Black woman on an operating table who's kneeling and facing the doctor. Surrounding them are two other white male doctors and a few other Black women peering from behind the curtain, getting a look at the scene. This is a depiction of Dr. J. Marion Sims with Anarka by Robert Tom. In this episode, I will be discussing the apprehensible Dr. Sims, as well as the three women who are becoming known as the godmothers of gynecology, Anarka, Lucy, and Betsy. I will also be diving into the history of mistreating black and enslaved bodies in the name of science and medicine and the effects it has had on the black community to this day. On the show, we've covered the Tuskegee syphilis experiment, which occurred between 1932 and 1972, in which the United States Public Health Service and the CDC experimented on nearly 400 black American men with syphilis in order to study what happens when the disease goes untreated. 
It's also reminiscent of the treatment of Henrietta Lacks, whose cells were used without her consent in 1951 in order to create the first immortalized human cell line, which they named HeLa after her. Though this is still one of the most important cell lines in medical research, the way they went about procuring parts of Henrietta is yet another example of the lack of care shown to black patients. This story today takes place between 1845 and 1849 in the South, where Sims experimented on numerous enslaved women on his property with the payment of the enslavers who brought the women to him. The fact is, Sims cared more about the experiments than providing treatment to his patients. Unfortunately, to get a fuller picture of this story, we do need to talk about the asshole J. Marion Sims. He was born in January 1813 and was an American physician in the field of surgery, but is also known as being the godfather of gynecology due to his development of surgical techniques in that department. This guy, and I'm going to go into it more later, he invented the torture device that is the speculum. I don't know if other women have the same like fear and reaction to speculums as I do. I don't know if it's partially because of like my past, but I hate that thing so much. I don't like being like left open. I don't know. Oh, I just hate it so much so like knowing that this asshole is the one that invented it just kind of like is the cherry on top of my hatred for that device he also invented a sigmoid catheter and something called the sims position which makes me imagine a sims character swaying side to side when you're changing their appearance but it's actually just a position you get in when you would receive rectal exams enemas and some vaginal examinations it was just like hey this is an easier way for us to be able to essentially see inside of a person's body He also established the first hospital ever specifically for women in New York and took a small role in the creation of the nation's first cancer hospital. He was even run out of his women's hospital for treating cancer patients. In his time, Sims was one of the most famous and venerated physicians in the country. He was even elected president of the Medical Association in 1876 and would boast that he was the second wealthiest physician of all time. Well, who's the first? However wonderful his medical feats appear to be, according to medical ethicist Baron H. Lerner, one would be hard-pressed to find a more controversial figure in the history of medicine. That says a lot to me, since I've learned a lot about Joseph Mengele, who is a true monster. He was born James Marion Sims, but preferred to go by Marion, and he was born in Lancaster, South Carolina, where he lived for the first 12 years of his life. His dad, a military veteran from the War of 1812, became the sheriff of their town, Lancaster Village, around 1825, and sent Marion to the newly established Franklin Academy. I also forgot to add this in my notes, so I want to interject now and say that the Sims family was a family of enslavers. So Sims was raised within that culture and that belief that it was okay to literally purchase a human being for labor. With some reluctance, Sims's dad signed him up to train medicine under a local physician named Dr. Churchill Jones, who was the uncle of Sims' eventual wife, Eliza Teresa Jones, who went by Teresa. Sims admired Jones's surgical abilities, and it inspired him to want to learn more about the field of surgery. In 1833, he began his university studies at the University of South Carolina, South Carolina College, then took a three-month medical course at the Medical College of Charleston, but he didn't like it because he found it too rigorous. Let's get into some doctor history stuff. It's important to also note the history of medicine as a whole when discussing this story. Before the 1820s and as late as the 1830s, it wasn't standard practice to train doctors in anatomy. 
And there was a really big problem because in order to study anatomy, doctors needed cadavers. And this is also where enslaved black bodies were being mistreated and mishandled. And I believe that a lot of this led to Sims's treatment of his patients. So I want to get into a little bit about the history of doctors and studying anatomy as a whole so we can understand what led up to Sims's experiments. According to a scholarly paper written by Stephen C. Kenny in The Social History of Medicine from WeRiseUp.net, which I used as a major source for much of my research, they say, in order to gain some measure of social acceptance for the practice of dissection, 19th century American anatomists piled their trade upon the bodies of outcasts and indigents of many ethnicities. Because of this, body snatching became an incredibly common practice in the medical community, and it was so prolific that folklore has been based around it. In 1989, construction workers unearthed 10,000 bones from a basement belonging to the Medical College of Georgia in Augusta. Scientists discovered that the bones, many of which showed signs of dissection, were from five decades of grave robbing intended to provide med students before and after the Civil War with cadavers. No records of these bodies exist, and none of the remains have ever been identified. This practice wouldn't end until the early 20th century. Stories of the, quote, night doctors began to be told to young enslaved children, warning them of the doctors who will come and kill them to use their bodies for medical experiments. The term night doctor is still used when referencing those who steal, buy, or practice on black corpses without their knowledge. Though it's considered folklore, it is based in fact. Enslavers would also sell their deceased to make extra money off of them. This is disgusting. You made so much money off of these people while they were living, and now you're taking even further advantage of them after their death. I read that during the time of slavery, many felt that the only time their bodies and souls would truly be at rest was in death. Enslavers and medical students who stole these bodies ensured that they would not receive peace. Grave robbing often occurred in poor communities with little funding to create deterrence, and on top of that, the practice was overlooked by the wealthier, more powerful members of society since the medical advancements made through this crime was benefiting them. And the penalty was super light. It was considered misconduct, and the perpetrator might pay a fine or spend a short amount of time in jail if anyone cared to even charge them. Along with the tales of night doctors, there were stories of the black bottle men or needlemen, which was similar to a night doctor, but was a specific name given to the perpetrators from the New Orleans Charity Hospital, now the Medical Center of Louisiana at New Orleans. This charity hospital has quite a historical record of racist incidents and showed up a lot in my research. Charity was a teaching hospital, and they were also experiencing difficulties procuring bodies to study anatomy on. In folklore, the needlemen would poke their victim in the arm, resulting in their death. Black bottle men referred to the men at Charity Hospital who administered something from a small black bottle to their patients upon arriving, resulting in the death of their patient. Another school that was responsible for this kind of crime was the historical Johns Hopkins Hospital and University, where from 1898 to 1904, two-thirds of the cadavers were black, which was largely disproportionate for the surrounding population at the time. It truly boggles my mind that people can mistreat others so badly, so brazenly, write about it in medical texts, and even be celebrated for it. But back in the antebellum South, the use of enslaved people for medical research was completely uncontroversial. 
A pamphlet for the South Carolina Medical College in the 1830s, when Sims was in attendance of the school, even boasted that they had a, quote, advantage of a peculiar character. It says... No place in the United States offers as great opportunities for the acquisition of anatomical knowledge, subjects being obtained from among the colored population in sufficient number for every purpose, and proper dissection carried on without offending any individual in the community. Like, they were just saying it. They just put it out there. And this is all important context to remember as Sims enters the medical profession in the 1830s. He moved on to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and enrolled in Jefferson Medical College in 1834, where he graduated a year later as a, quote, lackluster student who showed little ambition after receiving his medical degree. Sounds promising. Sims himself said, I felt no particular interest in my profession at the beginning of it apart from making a living. Great. I was really ready at any time and at any moment to take up anything offered or that held out any inducement of fortune because I knew that I could never make a fortune out of the practice of medicine. Nothing good ever happens when a person is driven by greed. Schooling for doctors at this time would rarely be more than two four-month terms in successive years, and hands-on education was even less common. It is nothing like the years and years of studying and hands-on training that doctors must complete to receive their licensing today. Sims decided to go back to Lancaster to open his practice, having had no clinical experience, no logged hours in a hospital, and no time treating illnesses. Especially for a surgeon, this is unheard of. And Sims was a really bad doctor. His first two patients were infants that were experiencing fatal cases of diarrhea, known as part of the summer complaint. This, just all of it, sounds terrible. So there was an epidemic where diarrheal deaths among American infants and children surged every summer in this time until the early 20th century. I can't believe I've never heard of this, but this went on for like a really, really, really long time where like in the summer, I don't know, babies born around that time must have just been really susceptible to this kind of disease. And it was fatal. Like, can you imagine? I I really can't. So anyway, Sims was brought two separate infants that were experiencing this disease, and both of them died. He was unable to treat either of them. This left him incredibly despondent, and he decided to move his practice to Mount Meigs, which is near Montgomery, Alabama, in 1840. In his autobiography, he wrote that Montgomery's small, freed black population provided the first patients to seek his service. But while he was setting up this practice, he also hopped back to Lancaster to marry Teresa Jones, whom he had met years earlier when he was a student, like I had mentioned. Together, they moved to Cubahatchee, Cubahatchee, Alabama, I don't know, where he worked as a quote-unquote plantation physician. Now, I want to do a little bit of a side note on the terminology research that I did in preparation for this episode. As a white person, I am doing my best to learn respectful and proper terminology when discussing the topic of slavery. With that, I am going to share some of the things that I've learned to help explain the terminology I will be using going forward and explaining why I chose certain terminology. I also want to note that whenever I am quoting something that uses outdated language, I do my best to change my voice up a little bit because I don't want people thinking that I'm actually saying that. But when things are really bad, I cut it out. I change the phrase 
housing, things like that. So that's just kind of context for some of the terms that I'm going to be using. But let's go a little bit further into it as well. When we refer to someone who has been enslaved as an enslaved person, we are acknowledging their enslaved state as imposed onto them and not linked to their identity as a person. It is important to call the perpetrators of these crimes enslavers rather than any formally used terms to acknowledge the enslaver's complicity and active participation in upholding and perpetuating the violent oppression of their fellow human beings. In my research, I also learned from scholar Edward Baptist, author of The Half Has Never Been Told, Slavery and the Making of American Capitalism, rejects the word plantation in favor of labor camps. But I did just state that Dr. Sims was a quote-unquote plantation physician strictly for context because labor camp physician could create different images in your mind. But that is something that I am going to be using more in the future when referring to the places that these enslaved people were taken. According to the UndergroundRailroadHistory.org, the vocabulary that has been used to identify and describe the institution of slavery in the United States does not paint a full and just picture of the institution. The same words that we use to describe the institution when it was still functioning are used today, but it is time to change a vocabulary that obscures the reality of the brutal system of terrorism and is detrimental to the legacy of enslaved people who suffered under it. They refer to a lot of these new terms to use as the vocabulary of freedom, which they hope ensures that the institution of slavery is seen clearly for what it is, hold oppressors accountable, and is a path forward for a more anti-racist world. So in this job working on the labor camps, he worked in partnership in a large practice among rich labor camp owners. He decided to move to Montgomery to be able to become more successful within this practice. He had heard of a prominent surgeon named Dr. Hugh Hugar Toland, very difficult name to say, from back in his hometown of Lancaster, South Carolina, who was becoming notorious for his successful surgeries on club feet and crossed eyes in enslaved patients. This inspired Sims to go into the same line of surgery, and soon he had straightened all of the crossed eyes and clubbed feet within a 50-mile radius of Montgomery. With this success, Sims decided to build a ramshackle hospital specifically for enslaved patients in the back of his property. There, Sims would have what he described as his most memorable time of his career. This was because the amount of enslaved people who desperately needed medical attention was abundant in Montgomery. I wish I could tell you the enslavers sent their enslaved to Sims because they cared about their health and well-being, but the fact is, when they were unwell, the enslaver wasn't making money off of them, and he needed them well to continue to build a profit. They also needed their enslaved women well enough to continue to reproduce more enslaved people for them for free. This is absolutely disgusting. In his autobiography, Sims writes about the advantages of working on people he had total control over, writing, There was never a time that I could not, at any day, have a subject for operation. Whew. All right, I need to take another little quick side note. I know that we're doing a lot of this, but this all is super important context when leading up to the stories of Anarka, Lucy, and Betsy, in my opinion. So let's talk about a really brief history of enslavement in Montgomery, Alabama, specifically. There was a high demand for enslaved people in Alabama in the early 1800s, and by the 1840s, steamboat and railroad transportation was available, making it easier for enslavers to transfer their victims. 
there was also a rail route constructed by slave labor connecting Montgomery's train station to West Point, Virginia, and lines extending to the Upper South. Because of this, hundreds of enslaved people were arriving by rail and boat every day in Montgomery, turning the city into a major center for trading of the enslaved in Alabama. By the start of the Civil War, Alabama had one of the largest populations of enslaved people in the United States. There is a wide history of enslaved women being sexually exploited and forced to carry their rapist children, which I believe ties to the large amount of enslaved women who needed gynecological services. Regardless of the baby's parentage, the vast majority of children born to enslaved women were immediately enslaved themselves. Much of this could do to the, quote, one-drop rule that has been discussed on the show before, which is a belief that any small amount of black blood you had in you, you were seen as black, therefore less than an enslaved. Africana Studies professor Eric Keery said, The birth of a baby into slavery meant profits that potentially lasted generations, a product requiring little investment. Whoa. So like I said, Sims built this little hospital in the backyard specifically for the enslaved female patients, and the enslavers would bring them there for treatment. In handing over the enslaved, the enslaver was handing over all the power over these people to Sims. The paper by Kenny also states that Sims, quote, a slaveholder himself, as well as being a medical practitioner, Sims consciously exploited the South's system of political economy, which permitted the use of slave labor to generate personal fortune and express cultural capital in order to advance his own claims to social and intellectual legitimacy. The hospital opened with just four beds, but it became so successful that he was able to renovate and add a second floor, doubling the capacity to eight beds and eventually doubling it again to 16 beds. In 1840, when Sims was doing his work, the field of gynecology didn't really exist, and there was no training available on the subject to Sims or anyone else. The only books on anything regarding the topic at the time were on the subject of midwifery, thanks to the women, as medical students didn't yet understand pregnancy, childbirth, or gynecological diseases. Also, student doctors at the time were often trained on how to deliver babies using dummies and wouldn't even see their first clinical cases of women until beginning their practices and actually, like, doing it. That's so scary. Also, doctors apparently found the whole female reproductive anatomy repulsive. Doctors were like, nope, we're not learning about that. That's disgusting. We don't need to know about that. Ew, ick. Sims shared this view, remarking in his autobiography, if there was anything I hated, it was investigating the organs of the female pelvis. It wasn't until Sims saw the need and potential financial success that this new field of study could bring him that he got a little more interested. He was once asked to treat a white woman who had fallen off her horse and injured her back and pelvis. Sims discovered that the best way to figure out what happened to her internally would be to look inside of her vagina. For this patient, he had her on all fours and used his fingers to open her up and see what was going on in there. Oh, God, it's so gross. I hate that I even had to say that. It was after this experience that he fashioned the first speculum. He was like, fingers no more. Let's use some sort of device. Thank goodness our vaginas thank you. Between the years of 1845 and 1849, Sims had 12 primary subjects, which were 12 enslaved women which he treated in his backyard hospital. All of these women suffered from something called fistulas. 
Fistulas were a common problem in the 19th century during childbirth, and it is a tear between the uterus and the bladder, which causes constant pain and no control over urine and fecal leakage. He eventually chose six or seven women to care for and named three of them in his autobiography, Anarka, Betsy, and Lucy, who had all suffered from vaginal fistulas after childbirth. These three women are thankfully becoming known as the godmothers of gynecology. According to NewYorkHistory.com, he made arrangements with their enslavers to lease the women for the duration of their treatment, so he had complete control over their bodies. Anarka, Lucy, and Betsy, along with other unnamed enslaved women, suffered at the hands of Dr. Sims for five years. Before being sent to Dr. Sims, these women were shamed and kept away from the rest of their community because of their condition. They also couldn't perform as much physical labor as the others due to their condition, which led to the frustrated enslavers to reach out to Sims. Sims' experiments would also be observed by other doctors who would watch the restrained naked women on the operating table forced to undergo unbelievable pain without giving their consent and without any form of anesthesia. People have argued that Sims didn't use anesthesia because it wasn't widely used at the time and the risk was seen as greater than the reward. Though a Japanese doctor named Hanayoka Sheishu, sorry if I'm pronouncing that wrong, became the first person to successfully perform surgery using general anesthesia in November of 1804. Nearly 40 years would pass until Crawford Long in Jefferson, Georgia, would invent modern anesthetics in the West. So anesthesia was available to Sims at the time, but he did choose not to use it. The only pain reliever given was opium, which was administered after the surgeries and didn't seem to have that great of effect. Sims would later even publish a history of anesthesia and was considered an expert, so according to him, it was not generally popularized until 1846. In a 2006 review of his work in the Journal of Medical Ethics, it would show that ether anesthesia was first publicly demonstrated in Boston in 1846, a year after Sims began his surgeries. There is also a common racist belief that is still believed by many doctors today, which is unbelievable to me, that people of color don't feel as much pain as white people. So Sims was also probably not considering the pain that he was putting these women through. Before I get into the stories of the three women at the center of it all, I want to talk about consent and enslaved persons at this time. Simply, there was no such thing. A person who had been trafficked and enslaved and literally owned by another human being has no agency in any decision in their lives, including what happens to their bodies. A person under these circumstances back in the 1800s and today cannot legally give any sort of personal consent. Sim's first patient was Lucy, who was dying from sepsis, a blood poisoning due to her fistula. He operated on her in the presence of 12 other doctors who had been invited to watch the procedure, again, without asking Lucy if that was okay. Lucy was brought into the operating room naked and restrained on the table so that none of her involuntary movements during the surgery would disrupt the procedure. This sounds like my worst nightmare. Sims decided to use a new technique by using a sponge to wipe urine from the bladder during the procedure, and 
he left the sponge inside of her urethra and bladder. Are you fucking kidding me? I'm literally, I'm closing my legs. Everything hurts. I don't even want to think about that. He left a sponge inside of this woman. Are you fucking kidding me? And she was conscious for this. She was awake for the whole damn thing. Oh my God. So of course, she got even worse. The sepsis was terrible. So Sims, again, had to open her up and remove the sponge from her body, and he was luckily able to cure the infection, but her injury didn't heal, and the operation was a failure. She still had this fistula. The next woman to undergo Sims' treatment was Betsy, who again was laid naked and restrained on the operating table without any use of anesthesia. This time, Sims used a different device he invented for the bladder, and Betsy luckily did not experience the same post-surgical infection that Lucy had suffered. However, Sims was also unable to repair Betsy's injury, and yet another operation was unsuccessful. Anarcha Westcott is the final and most well-known of the subjects, but still rather little fact is known about her, as most of the information we have on her came from her enslavers as well as Sims' notes and autobiography. She's described in his autobiography as a mixed-race girl about 17 years old. He also grossly comments that Anarka is, quote, well-developed. Ugh. Dr. Sims was called in to take care of Anarka after her labor lasted three days and would eventually end in a stillbirth. No source comments on how Anarka got pregnant, so the unidentified father of the child may well have been Mr. Westcott, described by Sims as a, quote, kind-hearted man. Or some have even suggested Dr. Sims himself, but I'm not really sure if that's possible. After the stillbirth, Anarka was sent to Sims because she had several unhealed tears in her vagina and rectum, which meant that she had no control over her bathroom functions, as well as excruciating pain due to the movements going past her open wounds. Ow! Being unable to control her urine and feces led to infections, inflamed tissue, and an odor. Sims performed 30 experimental, non-consensual operations without any form of anesthesia on Anarka before he successfully closed the fistula and tears. Before its success, though, when the medical community heard of his many failed attempts, they stopped supporting his experiments. Since all of Sims' white male assistants had to quit, he ended up training Anarka, Lucy, and Betsy to be his assistants during operations and taught them how to care for each other during their recoveries. This made these three women pretty skilled medical practitioners in their own right. And this is sometimes used as a defense for Sims' actions by implicating these women in his crimes. Some others who defend Sims say these women would have been in so much pain that their only options were to die or to go to Sims, and they were probably thankful for this treatment. So even though these women became really skilled assistants during this time, they again had no way to consent to anything they were doing. And still, this sounds like hell. Let's put ourselves in the shoes of these women for a moment. So they were sent from one hellhole to another for this man to be able to literally operate and experiment on them whenever they want, being in excruciating pain all of the time. And by the way, between their different operations without any pain medication, they were expected to work for Dr. Sims around the house and as assistants help each other out while they themselves are experiencing excruciating pain. 
the fact that they were made to work while they were going through this pain, even if it meant that they became like skilled in the field of medicine, doesn't fucking matter. <laughs> like they were being forced to do these things. And I also can't imagine the psychological damage it had on these three women having to operate on these people that went through the same thing that they did. They probably felt like they were torturing themselves in a way. And I don't know, I just I feel really, really saddened for these three women, as well as, you know, the others that made up the total of 12 that had to go through this experience for five years. And anyone that is defending Dr. Sims's behaviors and actions, none of it rings true. None of it makes sense. These women were tortured and abused by this man. After operating on Anarka, Lucy, and Betsy, Sims continued to bring more and more enslaved women to his home. After Anarka's 30th successful operation, Sims closed his hospital and moved north, eventually reaching even higher success in New York. Anarka, Lucy, and Betsy were all returned to their enslavers. All right, before I go on with the rest of the story, let's take a quick break. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% back at hundreds of stores, and it's all happening this week, May 6th to May 13th. It's the perfect time to shop for everything on your list for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. I know I'm using this week to stock up on some warmer weather essentials at Ray-Ban and Ulta, and I love that Rakuten even helps me save on travel at sites like Hotels.com. Rakuten really is the best way to shop, and you can save even more by stacking cash back on top of deals. Plus, during Big Give Week, that cash back is bigger than ever. With Rakuten, membership is free. And when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of the 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Hello, my name is Alison Larkin, and I'm a writer, comedian, and narrator and host of the Jane Austen podcast. This podcast brings Jane Austen's stories to the 21st century, along with commentary from me and conversations with fascinating people who all share a love of Jane Austen. And of course, we had to start with none other than Pride and Prejudice. So join me as we embark on a journey through some of the most wonderful stories I know. The Jane Austen Podcast with Alison Larkin is available wherever you listen to podcasts. And we're back. Once Sims felt his experiments were complete and his technique was perfected, he published an account of how he repaired Anarka's fistula in his surgical reports of 1852. He never mentioned in his writing that the women he operated on were enslaved or that he had complete control over their bodies. He also never mentioned the fact that he trained them to be skilled medical professionals and gave them no credit for all of their assistance. In the illustrations that accompanied the article, he is shown operating on white women with the help of a white nurse. The patient is also seen covered, a respect never given to Anarka, Lucy, or Betsy. Soon, his procedure became very popular. According to Durenda Ohanuga, many white people came to Sims for treatment after the successful operation of Anarka. However, none of them, due to the pain, were able to endure a single operation. What does that tell you? <laughs> 
However, according to Sims during a lecture in 1857, anesthesia isn't needed for a fistula surgery because, quote, they are not painful enough to justify the trouble and risk attending their administration. In the words of Rachel Green from Friends, no uterus, no opinion. Although shortly after moving to New York with enough complaints, he began operating exclusively on white women with the use of anesthesia. He became so prominent in this field that he was given the nickname, the Godfather of Gynecology. Dr. Sims' legacy has been honored with three statues across the United States, one of which describes him as treating both empresses and enslaved women. Though he perfected a surgery that continues to help women to this day, there is no way he should be celebrated for the way he treated enslaved women. There is something called the Godmothers of Gynecology movement, which is trying to shift the narrative from focusing on Dr. Sims and onto the three subjects of his experiments that we know of, as it was through them that this medical practice was able to be used for centuries later. Terry Capsalis, who wrote Mastering the Female Pelvis, said, quote, Sims's fame and wealth are as indebted to slavery and racism as they are to innovation, insight, and persistence, and he has left behind a frightening legacy of medical attitudes toward and treatments of women, particularly women of color. In 2017, New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio launched a commission to evaluate monuments in the city, including the statue of J. Marion Sims in Central Park. During the 90-day evaluation period, author J.C. Hallman released an article in the Harper's Magazine entitled Monumental Error, which contributed to the greater nationwide debate about the role of Confederate monuments. Sims' statue was voted out by a unanimous decision and was removed in April of 2018. As the statue was being taken down, the crowd carried signs saying, Believe Black Women. Someone hollered, Off with his head! And other locals toward news reporters that finally their ancestors can rest. A local organization called East Harlem Preservation had been fighting for the removal of the statue since 2006, and one of the founders of the group, Mariana Ortiz, said, Throughout our campaign, we maintained that the statue's presence did a huge disservice to the neighborhood's majority Black and Latino residents, groups that have historically been subjected to medical experiments without permission or regard for their well-being. Hallman also released several op-eds detailing Sims' career as a spy in Paris and published another piece with the African American Policy Forum about the lukewarm attention that the medical community has given Sims' legacy, despite his impact on vaccine hesitancy in the Black community during the COVID-19 pandemic. Hallman also became super invested in this story, specifically the story of Anarka, and made it his mission to discover more about the mysterious woman. He was prompted to explore more about her life after finding the first evidence of her existence outside of Sims' own writings. He was even interviewed by a filmmaker who created the documentary Remembering Anarka, which was released in 2020. In it, Hallman drew a link between Anarka's story and the ongoing health crisis in Africa regarding the treatment of obstetric fistulas. Hallman describes reading Sims' writings and learning about his deadly practices, saying that they read like snippets lifted from the pages of a horror story. He told Aspen Public Radio, Bringing her story to life is a way of bringing justice back to history. There is now a 15-foot monument that honors Anarka, Lucy, and Betsy, created by artist Michelle Browder, telling their story and shining a light on ongoing racial disparities in the healthcare industry today. 
In 2021, the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecologists member Veronica Maria Pimentel proposed that the ACOG dedicate February 28th and March 1st to recognize Anarcha Lucy and Bessie, along with other enslaved women exploited in the name of medicine. I like this because it bridges the gap between Black History Month and Women's History Month. Luckily, this proposal passed. And one of the main reasons why this story I feel is so very important, even today, is that there's no wonder with such a history between the medical community and the Black community that there is still broad distrust. As recently as 2020, a poll showed that 70% of Black Americans believe people seeking care are treated unfairly based on race and ethnicity. In 2020, we saw a huge disparity in COVID disease and death among the Black community and other minority groups that bore the brunt of the devastation. Also in the United States, Black people have higher rates of being uninsured and have less access to health care. They are less likely to have a regular primary care provider, and when they do, they are less likely to be referred to a specialist when needed. They are also more likely to develop health conditions at an earlier age and are more likely to die younger than white Americans. Their doctors write about them more critically or skeptically in their medical records, and their pain is simply not as believed by doctors. As recently as 2016, a study of medical students and residents found that nearly half of them still believe that black people tolerate pain better than white people. Most of the people studied were, on paper, very educated and were studying at elite universities, which should scare the crap out of all of us that there are quote-unquote educated people out there that still hold this belief. I cannot wrap my head around it, and I refuse to. It doesn't make any sense. In regards to gynecology, black people have had higher maternal mortality rates, triple that of a white patient, higher rates of preterm births, and higher rates of infant mortality. The story of tennis star Serena Williams' harrowing childbirth makes that incredibly clear. The day after giving birth to her daughter via a C-section, she was having trouble breathing and immediately assumed she was having a pulmonary embolism, which she had had before. She alerted a nurse and asked for a CT scan and a blood thinner, but the nurse suggested that perhaps the pain medication given to Serena had left her confused and didn't take her pleas for help seriously. This is Serena Williams. Are you kidding me? You listen to her. If she wants a blood thinner, you give her a blood thinner. If she wants a CT scan, you give her a goddamn CT scan. They gave her an ultrasound, which revealed nothing. But then she finally underwent that CT scan, which showed several small blood clots in her lungs, and she was immediately treated. This is incredibly dangerous. And I'm so thankful that she was able to get this caught in time because 700 women die each year in the United States as a result of complications during pregnancy and childbirth to this day. And poverty, access to care, culture, and communication all contribute to these disparities, according to Professor Elizabeth Howell. So while we focus on Black history this month, it's also important to recognize that a lot of the issues discussed are still issues today. I do not blame the black community for their distrust. And I think the only way for some of these statistics to change is for doctors to start taking black pain seriously and for black patients to begin to trust their doctors. But again, that's going to take time. Trust isn't easily gained, especially after so many centuries of mistreatment. Until this happens, they will be diagnosed later or not at all. 
or misdiagnosed, and they won't be given the treatment necessary to live as long a life as their white counterparts, giving the community less of an opportunity to live long enough to make change. All of this comes together. We need to protect each other and believe each other's pain in order to continue the longevity of all of our lives in order to make the world a better place. We need and must respect the black community. And we, meaning my fellow white people, must remember these stories throughout our lives to ensure that we are not perpetuating a dangerous cycle of distrust. All right. Thank you so much for listening to another episode. I hope that you enjoyed learning about this, even though it was so unbelievably terrible. I felt that this was a really important topic to discuss. And I totally forgot to mention this at the top, but I had already decided to cover this this week. And then I got a message from a listener on Instagram suggesting it as well. And I was like, oh, my gosh, like, one track mind. That's crazy. So to that listener who reached out, I hope I did it justice in telling this story. If there's anyone out there who has any more tidbits or anything that I missed or should have known about this story, I would love to hear it. So please email me at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com or shoot me a DM on Instagram at angry neighborhood feminist. Also, before I forget, I want to mention again that Patreon is now live for the Angry Feminist Book Club. I released a video on Instagram and the reels kind of explaining how the book club is going to work, but I am going to remind you all that the first episode is going to be released on February 8th, and I am covering the book Barracoon, the story of the last quote, Black Cargo, by Zora Neale Hurston. And in the first episode, I won't really be discussing the actual text of the book. I'm going to be talking about Zora, the author, how how she went about, you know, writing, what her history was, and also just the story of how her writings were lost and rediscovered is really, really interesting as well. So I'm going to go into a lot more of the history of the book in the first episode, and you'll have until March 2nd to like read the book and everything like that. But in the meantime, if you're able to read it before then and you have any comments or questions or things that you want me to discuss in that second episode, I really, really need your help. So please email me at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com or DM me at angry neighborhood feminist on Instagram and send me your thoughts, your questions, all that kind of stuff so that we can truly make it a book club and not just me talking at you all the time. I also had a listener mention that we should do Zoom hangouts sometime and actually have like a book club. And I think that would be super cool. Right now, my schedule is so nuts that I think like adding another like allotted time to do something like every week or every other week would be really tough. But um, I'm going to look into doing that in the future because I think that would be really fun. And I think the idea of doing like a live or a Zoom with listeners that you know, want to pop on and chat and hang out. Like, I just think all of that in general sounds like so much fun. All right. I love each and every one of you so much. Thank you for being so amazing. Thank you for listening to another episode. I am very excited to go on a journey for another three episodes for Black History Month. I am still kind of cooking up some ideas, so we'll see what uh, comes out next week. That is all I have for you today. With all of that being said, I encourage you to rage on. Bye. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. 
Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.